Welcome to episode 71 of the Great Divide podcast, which features Tom and Svein beginning their song-by-song discussion of the big country classic 1999 album, Driving to Damascus. You can expect the usual scholarly archival discussion, some humorous hijinks, and likely a rant or two. Take it away, Tom and Svein. All right, then, driving to Damascus. God, this is going to be some uh, deep dive. That's all I have to say. I'm, I'm done. I'm spent. <laughs> now, um, what, what I will try to do for every song is uh, recap the demo situation and uh, the rehearsal status for each song and what alternate versions we have and where those exist. And based on when driving to Damascus, the song starts showing up in demo form and when it was played live, it uh, appears this song was written later than a lot of the others on the album because they did a lot of demo sessions in England. This was not demoed until the sixth Driving to Damascus demo session in Nashville in late 98 after the band went over there to get their material in shape. And that was the session where they did five songs of which two ended up on the album, which would be this title track and Trouble the Waters. So uh, the first version of that song is more basic. It lacks the guitar line that rips throughout the opening of the album, which is one of the characteristics of the song. But instead, it has a guitar line playing through that sounds almost like the intro to God's Great Mistake. The line was lost in favor of the ripping opening yeah. intro guitar line in the final version. Yep. Um, but when they launch into the verse and chorus in the demo, that is more or less a structure that is intact on the album version. And uh, both of these demos, you can listen to them. They are both on Rarity 7. The first one is called Driving to Damascus first version at the end of CD1. And then you find the other one on CD2, obviously. And CD2 is a more fleshed out demo version from back in the UK, House in the Woods, December 98. It has an intro similar to the album version and overall very much like what it, how it ended up. So um, what is known about this song 
really how it's been described by Stuart many times is that the lyrics are a modern day retelling of the Apostle Paul's vision of Christ on the road to Damascus. And uh, we have, um, we happen to have a preacher's son on this podcast who knows his Bible story, I'm sure, way better than me. Uh, all <laughs> I can say, I'm, I'm going to actually ask you to, to come in and talk about this. I know you, I know amongst your research notes, 90% of them are about this. Uh, <laughs> all, all I, my brief take is after Jesus' uh, resurrection, he showed himself to all his disciples, and Paul was the last one he appeared to. And that took place on the road to Damascus, where Paul was traveling. The only thing I'll say that is fascinating to me about this is, uh, to me, it's significant that Paul was actually dedicated to persecuting the early disciples of Jesus in the area of Jerusalem. And the purpose of his journey to Damascus was to arrest a group of these disciples and bring them back to Jerusalem. And that is something that, you know, if this is a modern retelling in the song, it's, it's an interesting aspect to, to keep in mind. Yeah, it definitely. And and Paul at the time of this of the story, his name was actually Saul. Yeah. And he changed it to Paul. So yeah, Paul Paul wasn't actually one of the disciples of Jesus, but he was a he was what was called a Pharisee at the time. Um this is, you know, biblical the biblical retelling as I recall it. Um and those were the the people who were uh the practitioners of the the Jewish law. And so he was very much against this new form of Christianity or this new form of religion called Christianity that was arising, and he didn't want it. And he spent a lot of time persecuting Christians. He would find them, arrest them, uh, put them in jail. He wanted to stamp it out. So as you say, he was he was going to this place called Damascus where he uh, knew that there were other groups of Christians springing up, and he wanted to try to stamp them out. And he was becoming supposedly very well-known for being the guy who would do this. So as he was going there— um, Jesus supposedly appeared to him, and Paul or Saul at the time was actually blinded by the vision. And Jesus said something like, uh, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" And he had this conversion experience on the on the road to Damascus. And and you you often hear a phrase um, occasionally where people will say, "Oh, he had a Damascus experience," or he he had a yeah, he had a Damascus experience, he or she. So if you ever hear someone say that, that's what they're talking about. It's like someone who has a 180-degree turnaround in their life, um, usually for some sort of spiritual reason. Wow. So that's what, happened, that's what happened to Paul. He, he, was, he went there ready to stamp out Christianity and help do that, and he, before he could even get there, he had this vision, and suddenly he became um, converted to Christianity, and then he became one of Christianity's... Uh, greatest uh, prophets, apostles, whatever you want to call him. And he, he changed his name to Paul for some, for some reason. So, so yeah, that's, that's basically what the song lyrics um, were centered around. And uh, as I said earlier, this really is like a, almost like a modern, modern day Christian album. And it's funny how Loserville was talked about early on as being the centerpiece. And then it definitely became this. I think considering the, the subject matter of a lot of these songs, um, this definitely makes more sense as being the centerpiece of the album. But uh, anyway, so that's that's my take on the on the story, and um, it very it's it's not something uh, whether whether you like that idea or not. I'll say this: uh, you're not going to hear a rock song um, taking that lyrical perspective very often, if ever. <laughs> so it's it's yeah. tip, typical Stuart uniqueness. But I have to say, apart from the word Damascus being used, which clearly makes you think of that story. Uh, do you see a lot of 
things in in the lyrics that would make you think of that because I I think uh, yeah he's driving through a desert just to replace the mascot with, with a different town um, yeah <laughs> I, I I guess I struggle to see the 180 in the song which is really central to the story of uh, of Paul going to Damascus yeah well I think I think just the word Damascus is what made me initially immediately clue into the song. And that's simply because of my background in, in knowing all this stuff. Mm. Um, but I think, I think one of the keys there, and I don't want to jump on anything you're about to say, but it is the line where he says, I, I said, I'm, go I'm going to the city to meet the high and proud and let them know that anger is the nature of the crowd. I think he's setting his character up as being someone who's full of anger. And we don't know exactly why he's going to this place, but it's something, to, something to do with, um, uh, whatever reasons have something to do with, with this anger and this rage that the guy seems to feel and he's lost, he's struggling to find his way around. So I think, sure. you know, you've got the guy like leading him on the bus and helping him out. And then he telling him to love them all, which is the opposite of what it seems he's going there to do. So yeah, that's how I took it. No, I, I, I hear you. Um, I, I think the word Damascus is really what, <laughs> what, what, what keys the two things together. It's a, uh, it's a loose retelling. It's not a literal retelling, as I see it. Oh, yeah. uh, I see it more as a, an inspiration rather than a retelling, to be honest with you. Yeah. But it's a good. In, it works as an inspiration, and it points some of the of the same direction. Um, I have a couple of quotes from Stuart. One which uh, was a reply to a post on the official Big Country website bulletin board, where he said. I was writing a contemporary take on Paul's vision of Christ on the road to Damascus, but with a guy driving a busload of tourists, which <laughs> there's, there, there's references to a bus, but there's no reference to tourists. So that's uh, kind of an interesting thing. And he also said on uh, BBC Radio 2 on the 7th of August, 1999, two days before the false fiasco, he was asked uh, by, the, by the hosts, whether the song Driving to Damascus had anything to do with him moving to the United States. And uh, Stuart's answer was... Um, actually, I never thought about that, but that, that's maybe subconsciously where it came from. No, I was just, just doing a whole bunch of kind of theological reading and just thought it'd be kind of cool to do like a, a modern take on, on Paul's vision of Christ on mm. the road to Damascus, but do it with some guy who's driving a busload of tourists. Yeah, because <laughs> I have this whole thing in America, don't they, about the rapture uh, when uh, the um, uh, when when uh, uh, the yeah. Savior returns. Those true believers are going to be go directly to heaven. Some of them um, out of their cars, apparently. Yeah, straight through the roof. That's right. Fabulous. I've seen that. You may have seen I the bump. You've I seen love. the bumper stickers, have you? That say, "Don't <laughs> drive too closely if the rapture occurs." <laughs> Drive away. <laughs> I've seen them. It's That's pretty fabulous. Pretty scary, yeah. But I tell you what, if I do see one, I'm going to get and put it on my car. <laughs> Don't drive too closely if the rupture occurs. Rapture, not rupture. No, I know. <laughs> Being Scottish, it would be cool to put it the other way. So, uh, again, with the tourists and the busloads, and <laughs> it's a, an interesting uh, take there. But, uh, okay, looking at what we actually have in this retelling or the inspiration, we have the person in the song who is also on the way to Damascus, driving along quite peacefully when things start to happen. And uh, I must say, um, until I uh, saw Stuart's quotes about the busloads of tourists, I just thought he drove his own car. I never thought much about it. I certainly never studied the lyrics that much. And the, the bus is barely referred to in any case. But it's not really relevant because what happens is there's a sandstorm, the road goes away, the axle froze, in other words, his car stops. 
Uh, and on top of this is low on gas, low on hope. Who wouldn't be if all these things happen at once? So in other words, his heart sank. What the heck is going on? This is typical. Why does this always happen to me? So he's lost and stranded in the desert or desert road en route to Damascus. And then in the middle of all this, the wind is howling, dust burns his lungs. Another driver appears, which is described in the song as small and twisted and his face was plain. <laughs> Does that come from any anywhere biblical, I have to ask? That's a weird description. Well, you know, you get into an interesting point that I, I'll talk about a little bit about later, but and this kind of takes me back to Stuart's Christian stuff going on and whatever church he belonged to. There, it's No, it's not, it's not a biblical thing, and there's really no description of what Jesus looked like in the Bible, but there are a lot of what I would call modern, more modern-era Christian churches who like to— who like to envision Jesus as this type of figure where he's um, he's not someone who would stand out in a crowd. He looks different. He looks normal or he looks just like a regular person. He's not someone who you would look at and see immediately. Oh, this must be the son of God. You know? So I think that's what he's trying to do here is probably is, is trying to show that this was just a regular person or he appeared like a regular person or maybe even a little bit odd. Yeah. Um, and, um, Small and twisted is a very interesting way of describing this guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think a lot of that, too, gets back to the whole notion of, of Jesus being someone who champions the 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 small and twisted or the, the people who are maybe considered outcasts or that kind of thing. And maybe that has something to do with it. And I know Stuart was, was talking about things like that. So I guess we should try and find out what church Marcus Hemmons' wife was preaching at. Yeah. That, that might have it, something to do with it. It, it could be. Yeah. And uh, later in the song, even you have uh, his eyes were wild. So, right, right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, but there's something fishing going on because this guy can, in any case, speak normally and be heard perfectly, while the person in our story has to shout at the top of his lungs to be heard over the storm. But uh, this takes us really to the part of the song with, uh, which you talked about before, where we learn where this guy is going, what he's planning to do there. So he's carrying a message of aggression, of anger. And then this uh, tw- small and twisted guys with wild eyes gives him some advice. And of course, you trust anyone who is small and twisted with wild eyes. They, they know <laughs> what they're talking about. Uh, he said, your words are lost on the dead when you belong to them. Once I was dead, and I knew the words of those dry and hollow men. And that is where perhaps you have... Um, more of a preaching aspect that it, you're you're sharing a message that I used to be angry like you. Uh, speaking angrily to people who are also angry is not taking you anywhere. It's not going to work. The other guy has done that once, but he found a better way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't mention the word in the chorus yet, which clearly is the message that this driver has for our guy. He said He said, love them all, all that you need when your heart is small. Uh, in other words, when your heart is filled with anger, it is small. You need to love them and your heart will grow. It will swell. So um, 
that's that's really the message. Um, and uh, I, I see really the similarities there to the biblical story where perhaps, you know, Paul was also going somewhere with anger in his heart to persecute people and talk to them angrily and whatever. And he was given a different message. So, so there, the stories align a bit, but I would never have made the comparison or the, or the leap, if you will, if the word Damascus hadn't been part of the equation. Hmm. So um, the auto driver eventually taus our guy out of the sandstorm, brings him to safety. But you get the feeling that the biggest help he could provide was the actual message of love, not the towing, not the actual getting out of the desert. Because he could tow him out of the desert, but he would still be lost if he has hate in his heart and preach hate instead of embracing love and the power of positivity. So um, not a direct copy really of the story about Paul and Jesus, but a similar story in a modern context. And just a phrase about driving to Damascus is actually enough. You don't need to add more. It's enough to make people think of the old story and make the connection. So right. uh, I think it's a quite clever uh, concept for a song, even if uh, it's not something that I know a lot about, really the origins of it and stuff like that. But that doesn't mean I have a problem with it. It's, it's a good idea and it's well executed. And especially with the the music that goes along with these words. I mean, musically, this is a very solid album opener. The first you hear is that guitar. And then they add the thundering engine. And then you have the great guitar line kicking off for it. So the opening guitar line just hooks you immediately. It sounds really huge. And it goes on and really just plays like it starts. It's, it's a rocker, not a full tilt rocker, but it's a mid-tempo song that is heavy on guitars. So it feels like it's a huge rocker. It's also interesting that once you start listening to this, and I have to say here, I actually opened my double vinyl album of Travel to Damascus to listen through it for the first time ever yesterday. I wow. ripped open the plastic just for this podcast to see if there was a sonic experience to be gotten. And that that's when the keyboard came out of the sound. And uh, they're obviously on the CD. You can obviously hear them. But for some reason, they were more came out uh, with the organics of vinyl. Uh, <laughs> not too much out front in the mix, just used for padding. And I think that works really well for big country. So um, it's a good way of using them. So knowing that Josh Phillips was here and providing it, uh, he he's come some way from the Peace in Our Time tour. Did he play it on this album? He plays on it, this album. I didn't know that. I didn't remember it anyway. That, that's very interesting. All right. There's no end to what you can learn by listening to the Great Divide podcast. <laughs> yeah, even us. Yes, indeed. Fantastic. And uh, obviously, I need to mention the, the quote-unquote bagpipe middle section, which clearly is played on keyboard. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's also clear what it's trying to emulate, and that is the old bagpipe sound <laughs> in, in some way. It does a miserable job doing it. <laughs> you don't like that one? I don't I'll like it. I'll let you rant about it soon. Yeah, this is, I'll just say that one. Yeah. I don't have a problem with it, but it's. Uh, I would have preferred a guitar solo. Yeah, me too. Yeah.
So uh, I, I think musically, it's uh, it's more solid than than great. Lyrically, it's uh, very interesting. It's one of those things that fall into perhaps the more storytelling and less personal significance. So uh, I think as an album opener, it's great. And a lot of people have uh, said this should have been a single. Uh, now, I would not have chosen this instead of a song like Fragile Thing. I don't have taken this a million times over songs like See You. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no doubt. Me too. Yeah. But that's more or less it. Uh, not a, a song I have tons to say about. I think musically it's solid. Uh, I think lyrically it's very interesting. But also a little bit, uh, it raises some questions that it doesn't quite answer. And I think the yeah. bus of tourists, especially, that he mentioned in two separate quotes. Uh, again, I see no mention of tourists. I see one reference to a bus. He might as well have been driven a Volkswagen. Well, I think, uh, I think the tourists are mentioned in the word pilgrims. Because um, he talks about, he helped me round the pilgrims up and lead them to the bus. I always took that as leading them back to the bus. Like they got, they got, the bus broke down in this sandstorm. He got out. He was trying to get it out of whatever it was stuck in. And in the yeah, meantime. For sure. But the yeah, they just kind of walked off the bus. It, it's just a concept of tourists. I, I got a different vibe from pilgrims. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I could see that too. So. Yeah, it's it's um the whole Damascus thing is is as far as the biblical context, I think it's just uh it's just a starting point. It doesn't ha as you said, it's a it's not meant to be an actual literal retelling of that event, but it's <laughs> it's sort of like uh, the overall theme of it and the the starting point for this modern story about it. But yeah, I mean, we've said we and you have said pretty much most of the things that I would be saying about it lyrically. Um but I do agree. It's a it's a great. I think this is a great song to base the album around, and it's a song that has sort of a manifesto that it puts forth that that you're going to be getting a lot of in the album and in different from different perspectives. Is is that just cliched idea of love? But it's but it's done so sincerely with this um, with this song uh, that it's. I think it's a really interesting and creative way to start the album off and it's kind of letting it be known um you know with the kind of mindset that Stuart is coming from and again we've i mean right out of the gate we've got all these heavy christian biblical illusions and we've got the whole um love them all thing which is usually equated very much with christianity and that kind of thing so we kind of know what's coming and and i, I wanted to just read something that i think gives a little bit of uh maybe a little bit more insight into Stewart's mindset when he wrote this particular song or had these things in mind. And this is, this is one of the emails. I think I've read this maybe before on the show, but I think it's important to read it in relation to this song because he wrote it around this time. I don't, I don't have an actual date for this email um, when he sent it, but uh, I think it was after the album came out. It was probably in 2000 or something, but I was corresponding with him and we were talking about some theological things and, you know, like what is, what is real? Who was Jesus? Did he even exist? Blah blah blah. And Stuart wrote this, which I thought was really interesting and has always stayed with me. And I'm I'm not reading this to say that I believe it because I, to be honest, I I don't. But it's a it's a nice, interesting comment from him, and I think will give you a little more insight into what he's thinking when he writes lines like "Love them all, all you, all that you need when your heart is small." He says, "How about this? 
our souls come from a state of ecstasy out there with God in the great miasma that created the universe, the primeval energy, if you like. They come to earth as the, as the spark that lights the human fire. Deep in our subconscious is the innate memory of the peace and grace of our previous state, and we grow up feeling lost and disconnected, disconnected, longing for a return to our true essence, searching for a spiritual rest that we try to recreate in our physical world, some with material things, some with drugs, some with religion, still others with a stoic acceptance. Those of us who are most lost, most longing to return, kill and rape and fuck up from their inability to cope. This is why Christ teaches us to love everyone. He knew the pain of the discarded, knew the lost sheep deserved the shepherd's love, for he also knew that eventually we all return to that glorious state. Now whether he was just a prophet or some w- or as some would have it, or truly a supernatural visitor is a whole new subject. A letter is a thing of beauty. So I mean <laughs> I just treasure that because it's it's so beautifully written i mean this is just an email that the guy was writing for crying out loud and i know a lot of you other other people out there got emails from him because he was very kind and sharing his time and his thoughts but anyway so that's that's kind of his his state at that time and it's funny because i shared that once on the old big country board and i remember tony butler commented on it he said something like wow that is not the Stuart that i remember or, or something to that effect i don't have the exact words and i'm paraphrasing but that's basically what he said like that is not the Stuart that I remember. And he was kind of almost uh, uh, concerned about that. I mean, this was after Stuart passed away when he read this, but he was almost like troubled by it. And I thought that was interesting too. So I don't think we can underestimate how much Stuart was really getting into this kind of thing at the time. And it influences practically everything on this album. But, um, you know, as you said, coming from someone who was a preacher's son and grew up in all this, as soon as I saw driving to Damascus, I had an idea of what it what it was going to be about, and that it was going to be influenced by that. And I thought it was a really unique and interesting way to tell the story. And um, yeah, and the whole thing about the Christ figure appearing and being this small and twisted guy with wild eyes. And again, some of these more modern modern churches they like to think of Christ as as and I've experienced some of this as this like revolutionary type of figure who you know, doesn't look like the old paintings made him look and, and, you know, they, they like to, they like to make him look more, I don't want to say freakish, but maybe, maybe kind of that way. I, I don't know. They feel more, they feel more comfortable with that. It's, it's kind of like the whole adage that you create the, the Christ or the God that most reflects you. You create God in your own image rather than him creating you in his. But anyway, that's, a, that's another subject, but it's, so I always kind of saw that in the way that Stuart was portraying Christ there. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, the great thing about the song is that it's so simple. The message is so simple, and he just keeps saying that in the chorus. And I think that's what usually makes for an effective song and an effective chorus is, is a simple message that also really resonates. And that one does. And I think the, the other interesting line is he, he says, love them all, but he says, all that you need when your heart is small. And it's interesting that he's saying that love is important to have and to show when your heart is small. You often think about someone showing that kind of love when their heart is already big and and Mm. giant and able to show this kind of love. But he's actually saying it as almost a curative type of thing. Like when you're lost, when when your heart is small, that's when you really need to love people the most. And when I read that and hear that song, and then I go back and read those words that he wrote, and he was so, um, he felt such a, a closeness and a, a bond to the what he called the discarded and the people who were lost and hurting 
And it's because he, I think, felt that a lot, especially during this time period. And, you know, it moves me. I mean, it makes me tear up just thinking about it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, I can really feel the sincerity in this song. And this kind of takes me back to what I was saying earlier, where you can almost see him, even in his pain, like he's reaching for things to make himself feel better, to save himself, to make himself come out of whatever this funk that he is in. And I think this is kind of him preaching to himself almost just as much as he's trying to get this message across to the people who are listening to the song. Um, so that's my, that's all I have on the lyrics. We've covered it well, I think. Um, as far as the music, yeah, when I heard this in Nashville and I heard that, that guitar line that he played um, to kick it off, it was just so great. I was like, oh, this is great. This is big country. This is what I want to hear. And yeah, it does. It does have. Um, it also has like a little bit of a you dreamer type of feel to it as well with that intro. But it, that's great for me because I love that intro as well. Um, and just to, just a little bit about Rafe McKenna in this song because this is this is us hearing his production abilities for the first time. And um, I think overall, Rafe McKenna did a really great job producing this album and engineering. And I'm assuming he engineered it too. I could be wrong about that, but. I think the sounds of this album are really, really good, and among the best sounds that Big Country has ever had in on an album. I think everything sounds really crisp and clear. There's a really wide variety of guitar sounds on this album, from from really hard edged guitar to clean, um, ephemeral type of otherworldly sounding guitar. There's acoustic stuff going on, and just all the layers. I think are really wonderful. And I think it really is an interesting contrast between something like uh, no place like home, for example, where every song to me had a certain similar sound to it tonally with the instrumentation and every song on driving to Damascus, I think fits tonally with the next. It it sounds cohesive, but there's so many different varieties of sounds on the album. I I love the way he produced a lot of this. Uh, I like his drum sound. I like his bass sound. Um, and I especially like the guitars. I think they're great. And I think Stuart's singing um, is really great on this album. He, even if it does maybe at times have a bit more of a country-ish tinge than I would prefer, um, I think by this point of, in their output, we came to accept the more quote-unquote Americanized sound of Stuart. And 
you know, it, was, it wasn't a shock like it was when we first heard Peace in Our Time. But um, there are some things, though, that he does, Rafe McKenna, that I do not like throughout this album, some production decisions. And one of them is on this song. It's like in the second verse, he throws in in the background the, these weird sounds that go throughout the verse. And it's kind of unique and interesting at first, but he keeps them going throughout almost the whole song from that point on. And it's like this weird... I don't even know how to describe it. It's like, it sounds like something from a David Lynch movie, maybe, but it's like, it sounds like someone's, it sounds like someone's whipping something around or whizzing. You know what I'm talking about? It's like during the verses, it's this weird little strange, it's not even a melody, a melodic type of sound. You know, it's just this, I, I thought I knew what you talked about until you made that sound, but. <laughs> 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 but I, but I you, think I know what you're talking about. To make him out, he simply spoke while I had to shout. He asked me where you driving, child. His voice was clear, but his eyes were wild. Yeah, I just find that like it's way too up in the mix, and it's just it's distracting. I really like the versions of this song that were done on the demos, and they did like I think a radio version or something that they did in a studio. Or, I can't remember what it was done for, but it was without the keyboard. It was without all the, that trapping. And I think it comes across much better. Yeah. You're thinking about the Nashville sessions, right? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. And I think it comes off much better on that because it's it just, it's more made for that kind of hard edge stripped down sound. Yeah. It's a straight band version. Yeah. Without that. Yeah. Without that. Yeah. There you go. But it's always like they were trying to fill holes that didn't need to be filled sometimes on the studio version. Um, and getting back to that solo, yeah, uh, they usually had played that with a guitar on the Nashville sessions, and I really do not like the keyboard being the solo on this. For one thing, it's like it's so uninteresting as a as a part. It's just like dun, 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 dun. It's, it's like a chimp hitting a key, like with, with this chimp hand. he happens to be in time sorry josh phillips we are always savaging josh phillips that has nothing to do with josh phillips it's just the the sound of the keyboard well i love that part i love (laughs) josh phillips you're great josh yes that will go over very well with him when we try to get him on the show But yeah, and the one criticism I'd heard of the song before, well, I don't know if it was, it was if it was given as a criticism, but to me it's it's not a good thing, is that it's got like a Gary Glitter feel to it. And I get that from it too, especially in that chorus. It's like there's something with the production with the keyboards underneath it, that keyboard padding, and the way it's produced, it sounds like a friggin' Gary Glitter song that you'd hear played at a football game. And I don't really like that. I don't I don't like that aspect of it. And these are these are generally minor things because I do think it's a good song and it's rated high on my list. But um, if I could have changed it, uh, if I could have had any influence on what Rafe McKenna did, I would have had him just stick to the template that was the simple template that they use in the Nashville sessions. Just use those guitars. They sound great. Use the drums that you've got. Don't try to turn it into this big anthemic stomping Gary Glitter song with keyboards. I, I think that detracts from the message of the song. And I don't particularly like that style of music anyway. So I wish they would have done that a little bit differently. But yeah, overall, it is a very strong album opener. Um, and I think it's a, it's a very good 
big country song leading them into what should have been a continued career into the 2000s. It's a it's a good example of big country changing, but still keeping elements of big country that the fans want to hear. I think um, it's not without its flaws, but I do think it's a it's a good album opener. So yeah. And with that, I think I I think I'm done too. Wow, yeah. I must say, I never thought Gary Glitter, but I see what you mean about uh, the stomping football chant uh, feel. Yeah, and, and I'd heard that used to describe it before. I wish I could remember where it was, but it's it's described the song as having this like Gary Glitter feel to it. But yeah. Anyway, oh, but yeah. One one thing I I wanted to do. This would be a good time to bring this up. Um, this will be quick, but. Uh, Andy Inkster, the great bogan Andy Inkster, the king of all bogans, sharing the throne occasionally with Dwayne Bunny, messaged me not long ago and reminded me of something that I wrote years ago. And it was a review of this album, track by track. And he said, I know you're getting ready to do this this album again. I thought I thought this was interesting. I stumbled on it. I didn't know if you remembered it and you might want to see it. So he sent me this review and it was from Rob Oliver's great old site, um, The Steel Town site that he had and it was archived so i thought what might be cool or interesting at least to me is if because i didn't go back and reread this i looked at it and i decided not to read it what i decided to do was to read it now after i have gone through what the song particular song uh what i think of it now in 2017 i'm gonna go back and read what i thought of it back in what was probably 2000 so i wrote just like a paragraph for each one so if you don't mind after i just Gave what I thought of it now. Let me see what I thought of it back in 2000, almost 20 years ago. And I'm reading this for the first time. I have not read it, I promise. Okay, so driving to Damascus, I write, A great opener. The opening guitar line hooks you immediately, much like the opening of You Dreamer did. (laughs) You immediately know you're listening to Big Country, and it definitely achieves the shiver along the spine effect we've all come to know and love. A great creative idea for a song offering a modern-day retelling of the Apostle Paul's vision of Christ on the road to Damascus. Read Acts from the Bible if you don't know what I'm talking about. The chorus is huge. I heard a reviewer compare it to Gary Glitter's Rock and Roll. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's an accurate comparison. Interesting use of keyboards here. Not too out front in the mix, just used for padding, which is how I like my keyboards. A strong, tough track, a definite favorite. So it looks like I was a little bit more accepting of the keyboards in that that write-up. But um, other than that, that's pretty interesting. Uh, The Gary Glitter thing was even in my mind then so you don't change much do you (laughs) i guess that's why i'm still a kiss fan (laughs) but this is the type of song that it's kind of uh what you see is what you get it's uh there are other songs that has a bit more tucked away in the corners and uh, i probably more prone to change over the years yeah yeah so yeah i'm not surprised so where do you rank it uh where do i rank it let me check the old notes here i've got it at number four Number four, quite respectable. I yeah. have it at number eight. Oh, wow. That's surprising. You seem to uh, like it more than me. Well, I, I do like it, but I think it's uh, a high level of uh, quality on this album. And like I said, I think this is a what you see is what you get song. It's a, musically, it's a steady song, but some yeah, of the other good. stuff is more exceptional. Yeah. And we should note that that song is credited to um, all four of them. Except Tony. Except Tony, yes, thank you. That's right. It was. It it's was actually Bruce. an interesting omission, so I'm hoping he will address that. Maybe yeah, they wrote point. it after he went back and didn't come back to Nashville again, like he said. If the others did. Yeah, I was looking at I was looking at Dive Into Me actually, which is credited credited to all four. But yes, that one does not have Tony. 
Hi, Great Divide. This is Arlen from Annapolis. So, Great Divide has finally made its way to Damascus. Uh, you know, this is one of my very favorite big country albums, the one that I think is probably the most underrated and overlooked, and I'm glad that Tom is fine are correcting that. You know, um, this album has some of the finest songwriting, I think, of Stewart's career. It got slagged some by, by some quarters because of the, you know, some of the lyrics seem sort of stream of conscious. Um, there's focus on some domestic detail, some oddly specific domestic detail, um, mixed in with some social commentary. But I think that's sort of missing the point because there's a real spiritual thread and a moral fabric that permeates the whole album and all the, on all the non-album tracks that came with it. It, you know, marked a real interesting time in Stewart's life personally. And I think that really comes through on the lyrics. Some of them are simple and direct, but they're some of the most profound and heartfelt lyrics, I think, of Stewart's entire career. I think it's easy to miss that. Um, thankfully, Speakpipe's time limitations won't let me ramble on too much here, but just a couple of other things I really wanted to hit. This has got to be the finest singing, and at least the recording of Stewart's singing, in his career. Um, you know, this is a vocalist who's, who had developed over decades, and really, at the end of his recording career here, his voice sounds nothing like it did on the first couple of albums. It's a subtle, um, supple instrument at this point. And I think some of the singing is absolutely fantastic, and it's recorded very well. Uh, and in the same way, the guitars are recorded amazingly. Um, outside of like Rage Against the Machine album, that's as good as you can record um, guitar sounds. You know, when they don't sound like an eagle ripping apart its prey, it sounds like a pack of lions ripping apart a gazelle. And when it's not doing that, it's because it sounds like Godzilla stomping on Tokyo. You know, the clarity of the recording of the guitars and the separation is just absolutely fantastic. Um, downside, though, and something that you, you hear done much better, I think, on the demos on Rarity 7, is that the bass, the bass playing is, is fantastic, as always. But it seems like it's sort of at the bottom of a barrel every once in a while. It's not recorded with nearly the same clarity and separation. And the drums, Mark's got some ferocious drumming on Perfect World and President Slipped and Fell. But there are times when it sounds like he's in an adjoining room without a microphone. and It's just coming through the wall. So definitely, though, in terms of pure guitar sound and singing and some really clever, interesting lyrics, this is some of the finest work, I think, of their career. This, uh, unfortunately, was their last album, but if this was their last album, at least with the original Mark 1.0, Big Country, what a great way to end it. Anyway, back to you, Great Divide. This is Arlen. Out. Hi, guys. Niall Featherstone here, speak piping all the way from Dublin City in Ireland. First and foremost, a thumbs up to Tom and Svein for all the great work on the Great Divide podcast. Absolutely fantastic. Loving every single episode, guys. Thank you so much. Delighted to be able to talk about one of my all-time favourite albums from any band, Driving to Damascus from 1999. Was lucky enough to catch this tour in Dublin's Olympia in 1999. And again, I think six of the songs were played on the Final Fling tour, which I caught again in Dublin in the following year, 2000. The highlights of this album for me I suppose the number one highlight has to be Dive Into Me. What an amazing, amazing song. Fantastic lyrics. Brilliant musicianship. As a big country fan and as a bassist, this particular track, I think, 
sees Tony really shining through on the album with a driving, driving bass line. When we had Tony over in June of this year at the Irish Big Country Fans Convention, the very first song from the very first band at that event were the Buffalo Skinners, an acoustic band from Navan in Ireland. And the very first song they played, bearing in mind Tony Butler was 10 foot away from the stage, was Dive Into Me. It was the first time Tony had ever heard in his life a live band in front of him playing a big country song. Dive Into Me was very special that night and we captured it on Facebook Live and we tried to beam it out to as many people as possible. But what an amazing song. The lyrics in it are just incredible. And again, the musicianship, unbelievable. Definitely a highlight for me from an album that has other highlights. The title track, Driving to Damascus, See You, and of course, the incredible, incredible Your Spirit to Me. Guys, keep up the great work, great memories. Keep it going. So, deep dive into me. This one is credited to all four members of the band. And uh, Stuart has a line about this song. He says it's a song about welcoming people into your life. Which makes total sense when you read the lyrics. There were two versions of this, obviously. We've talked about the In the Scud release already. And that's the first time that we heard this song. um, The In the Scud release. And what's interesting is that In the Scud was initially released. And it was... was, um, kind of, I don't want to say advertised so much, but it was listed as containing songs that would not make the album. Um, but this one did make the album. So I don't know if it was initially thought that they weren't going to put it on the album and then change their minds. I don't know. But it's kind of surprising that they would never have considered this for the album because despite what I may think about certain aspects of the song, it does fit very well on this album. And it, and it seems like the kind of song that would make an album, um, at least driving to Damascus. Yeah, I, I I just want to say I, I I'm not saying you're wrong, but that's not how I remember it. <laughs> uh, that this is definite songs that wouldn't make the album. I I thought it more as this these are the first candidates. Well, it's I, I just read it on Country Club uh, yesterday when I was going through it. I don't have it in front of me, but it, I can go back and find it. it. It it just it was in Country Club, so that's you know that might not have come directly from the band. It might have been whoever was writing it at the time. Okay, I don't remember. I I didn't read Country Club, so. That's uh, probably it. Yeah, yeah. But either way, I mean, it doesn't matter. But either way, uh, I I also remember Stuart writing in In the Scud, you know, on the liner notes that um, he was a little hesitant releasing this because he felt kind of strange about it because he knew that these songs weren't finished. And even though some of them might never be finished, they still were were early workings of things. And um so that does kind of lend itself to to make you think that he knew that yeah. they were coming and you know, maybe a final version was coming. So that is kind of at odds with the, with the country club thing. Yeah. He did, he did liken it to going naked on stage. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what he said. And then, hence in the scud. So it's the perfect, uh, perfect title. Yeah. Um, 
But personally, I I, I kind of like I like aspects of both of these versions, but I, I think I prefer in some ways the in the scud version of this song. Th- this song I do not love anyway. It, it's it's a song that I know a lot of people really love, and a lot of people lo- really enjoy this song. And more power to you. There's a lot to like about it, but there's there's something about it to me. There are a few things about it to me that that never really did it for me. Um, and and even the in the scud version, but. I think the thing that about the In the Scud version that makes me like that a little bit more, despite some other some flaws on that one too, is I think this song is more geared to the sort of more um, wistful approach that they have on the In the Scud version. That there are distorted gu- guitars on that version, but there's also like a more acoustic feel to it mixed with the distorted guitars. Whereas the version on Driving to Damascus is just like full bore rock and roll. And it's cool. It sounds good. It's very well produced. But to me, the 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 subject matter, the lyrical subject matter just has almost, uh, especially the verses, has sort of a haunting, very autumnal feel to me. And and uh, I don't know, I think just the production of that early demo, that more naked feeling demo works better for it. This is another interesting song for me that that carries on in the tradition of a few big country songs that have been coming on the past few albums. And what I mean by that is there have been like some songs on the last few albums leading up to Driving to Damascus where I loved the verses of the songs, but when the chorus kicked in, I kind of checked out. And that started with me for the song Alone on Buffalo Skinners. I absolutely love the verses of that song. The verses to me are just like quintessential big country. I love them. When, it, when the Alone chorus kicked in, I never could really get into the song. I never liked that chorus that much, and I can't really say exactly why, but it just never really resonated with me. I almost waited for them to get back to the next verse, which is an odd way to look at a song and not really necessarily what you want a listener to do. The other song on Why the Long Face that did that to me was Message of Love, a song that I just love the verses of that song. I think they're so awesome and, and dare I say, badass. But when the chorus kicks in, that song loses me. And this is this is another example of that. Dive Into Me is a song where I absolutely love the verses. I love the, the structure of the verses. I love the lyrics of the verses. Um, and it's it's got... I know Stuart at the time was talking about listening to bands like the Gin Blossoms and bands that, quite frankly, when I heard him mention them, I would be like... I would kind of crinkle my nose and, and be like, hmm, I don't know if I want the next big country album to have a Gin Blossoms influence. But um, 
I can kind of hear that influence a little bit in some of these songs, and this is one of them. It's it's kind of a more Americana type of feel to it. But the lyrics, I think, are touch on a theme that we're going to get throughout a lot of this album, and that is just this longing from Stewart to find something that is his perfect representation of love, something that that fulfills his real longing to find someone who loves him for who he is, who knows him inside and out, who wants to know him, flaws and all, who wants to, who, who can take that dive into his soul, who he is, can see all the dark places that exist that he maybe tries to hide from, from people, and who can come out and who can reemerge from that water and still love him. And I think that's what this song is clearly about. I mean, and he says that welcoming people into your life. It's not just welcoming them with a handshake or at arm's length. This song is about taking someone literally, you know, into you, taking taking their their soul into you and and yours into them. So you there are no more secrets between the two of you. And I think we get a lot of that on this album where he's like really romanticizing these these ideals that uh are, are the things that he longed for. And then quite frankly, are, are very, very hard to find in real life, if not at times impossible. And we'll get to this a little bit more too in the song, perfect world. But I think, I think the song starts out with just a gorgeous lyric. It's, it's not quite as beautiful as what Svein read as we kicked off this podcast, but it is a great, it's a great line. And it's a classic big country line. It's a classic Stuart line. And, and of course, that immediately gets you into the whole autumnal feeling that I was talking about. And, th- and that's what this whole song leads to. It, eventually, I mean, in the beginning, we start with this guy who's standing alone at the tail of a river. And he's wanting someone to dive into him. He's wanting to find someone to, to understand him, someone that he can that he can love a relationship that he can have or some where he doesn't have to explain himself. And when we think about what Stuart was coming out of at this time with the divorce he was having, um, he was also having a new relationship with, uh, I'll, I'll name her. I don't care, but Melanie, um, he was, he was having a rela- new relationship. I don't know when this song was written in relation to that, but I, I, if it, it certainly was at the early stages um, or the early portion of, of a new relationship with him, I would think. And so it's kind of like he's straddling a line between still being crushed by the loss of the previous relationship and maybe being hopeful about the possibilities of this new relationship. And this is what he wants. He wants someone to, to he doesn't want to have to pretend with someone is basically, I think, what he's saying throughout this entire song. And not only that, but he doesn't want them to have to pretend for him. He wants both of them to be able to leave themselves wide open to the other, where they can see everything about the other person and still be willing to accept them as they are. And then in the second verse, we get... Another, again, just beautiful lines, just really great lyrics from Stuart here. Um, 
as only he can write. I mean, just really great. Uh, Stuart at a really high level of lyric writing, I think, here. And he's found someone at this point in the song. And I think what he's saying here in a very poetic, beautiful way is that they're they're trusting everything to work out. Just as a river kind of knows where it's going instinctively, they want to be at a point where they know where they're going instinctively. They want They want their relationship to work on an instinctual level where they don't have to, like, think about everything and explain everything and examine everything and try to interpret everything. They want to just be able to, he wants someone who he can be with, who they just sort of instinctively get each other and wherever they're going, it's where they should go and where they're supposed to go. And I I think that's really a beautiful way to look at, uh, at this hopeful relationship and what he wants. Um, And then we come to, I'm going to get to the chorus in a minute, but we come to the bridge, which I think is, just again a great bridge both musically and lyrically and the particular part that i really love aside from knowing how to swim doesn't mean you'll never drown which is sadly a very prophetic line for stewart's life um and how it ended uh and holds true for many people in a lot of different scenarios but the line that really gets me in this song or in this bridge is when he says come the storm you hold in fear whoever's by your side and I think that is an amazing line that that actually gives the song even a new take because whenever I hear that line and he just talked about drowning, it made me think about when someone's drowning, you, you're always taught that if you're trying to save them or you got to be really careful because they'll just grab at whoever is there and they may grab at them wildly and they may, because they just want to grab a hold of someone and they may end up, you know, causing the other person to drown too if they're not careful. And so when I hear that bridge, I'm thinking, Wow, so now he's found this person. He's 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 kind of framed this thing that he wants the way he wants it to work out. But he just said that come the storm you hold in fear whoever's by your side. So is he saying that this person is the person who has come by his side in this storm that he's facing in his life with the breakup of his marriage, which we know that we know something that haunted him throughout the rest of his life. So it almost makes you look at the relationship even in a, in a different way, like, hmm, could this person be like a real true relationship that he's going to grow with and move on with? Or is it just the person who he's grabbing a hold of while he's drowning and they happen to be there, so he's grabbing them? And I think that gives almost, a, I don't know, it gives kind of a, a sinister type of feel to the song, almost like a, a disturbing feel to the song. And that's how I look at it. And whether that was intentional or not, I don't know, but I think it's a... It gives the song even more depth. Yeah. Sometimes swirling waters drag you down. Knowing how to swig it doesn't mean you'll never drown. I'm the storm you hold in fear. Rappers by your side. Sometimes you're just drifting on the tide. So anyway, that's the that's my lyrical discussion of the of the verses with the parts that I like. The, what I don't like about the song has always been the chorus, and both musically I don't like it, and lyrically I don't like it. I I like the sentiment. I think it's a great sentiment of someone diving into the other person, but it it just always struck me as an awkward way to say it. I don't know. It, it's to me it just straddles a line too closely to being too cheesy, too much like a a greeting card type of thing. Dive into me. I mean, I just, 
it just doesn't hit me the right way. I, I don't know how else to really describe that. And musically, the song has, the chorus goes into a chorus that's, it's well-written from a technical standpoint. It's got a, a very, it's easy for the listener to, to remember and to, it's a, it's a good hook. But, it, but that chorus strikes me as being almost like a, a Bible school song or like a camp song with the, with the, the way the, the chord structure is. And then that coupled with the lyrics of dive into me, into the raging sea. Um, it, it just, to me, the chorus doesn't live up to the beauty of the verses, both lyrically and musically. And I get what they're trying to do in some respect because it's a, it's a very radio friendly type of chorus. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of uh, rock friendly type of chorus that you might hear. I mean, I expect the chord changes. I've heard those types of chord changes before. Um, but, uh, it just doesn't, it just doesn't really strike me as being, it, it doesn't move me the way the verses do is, is all I can say. So that's always been a big part of the song that, that detracted from it for me. And again, I know a lot of people love the song, but that chorus just never did it for me. So that, that's, that would take the song down, down a few notches for me. I do think they made one improvement on the chorus though, on the driving to Damascus version. In the In the Scud version, the line is... And even when I first heard that, I thought, eh, I don't know about that line. And then they changed it to... which i think works better um but still for me i think it's a it's a song of uh it's a song of great potential and the message is really actually very beautiful and poignant but for me the chorus brings the song down and takes me out of the song i don't i just don't like that chorus i never have and every time i think I want to go listen to Dive Into Me. I know I like that song. I know there are portions of it I like. Every time I get to the chorus and I'm going, uh, maybe, maybe I don't want to, you know, continue listening. It's just, it's not, uh, there's something about the chorus that just doesn't <laughs> resonate with me. You're not put together right. <laughs> I, th- I do think it's a very well-produced song, aside from what I said before, that I, I do prefer the In The Scud instrumentation. Yeah. No, I get why people would uh, perhaps like the chorus less than uh, the rest of the song. But you're actually saying the chorus takes me out of the song. <laughs> that <laughs> seems does. like a drastic uh, reaction to it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well. So I sense huge discrepancy. Nice. So, so all of you guys who, who love Dive Into Me, don't worry. Uncle Svein is here for you because <laughs> I love the song too. <laughs> Just to cover first the demo steps, this was demoed um, on the fifth Drown to Damascus demo session in mainframe Nashville, likely September 1998, which means it was written likely summer, late summer 98. So it could fit well with the relationship of, of her. And um, <laughs> the version that ended up on the, the In the Scud comes from those sessions in September 98. And that is the first demo version we have. And... Um, 
I pretty much agree with what you said. The, the change they did to the chorus really uh, is a significant one for me because the uh, the first one, I like a lot of the In the Scud version. And in some ways, I agree with the acoustic treatment. But uh, the change they did to the chorus fixed it for me mm. uh, in a large way, especially musically. Lyrically, it was all right, but uh, it gave the chorus a kind of bigger punctuation or a, a more dramatic heft the way they write it up, stop a bit, and tear into the, the mid part again. So I think that is uh, an excellent change. And the only really change they did, apart from the, the intro, the intro they did a little bit different. Oh, they did, they, did, they did truncate the solo too. I meant to mention that. That's one thing I wish they hadn't done on the Driving to Damascus version. The In the Scud version has a longer solo that I thought was really nice, and they cut it in half on the album version. Okay. Never thought much about that. So I, I do like the solo. They did a lot of stuff for, for these sessions where they have acoustic-based songs with a nice electric solo over it. And the prime example for me is Birmingham. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the demo of uh, Dive Into Me also has some of that. So, uh, yeah, to start with the music for a change, I think the intro to this song is great in any incarnation. I love how it is basically a simplified version of what they eventually kick into, just building up and then tearing into it. Uh, now, they tear a little bit more into it on the album version, obviously. Then then you have a fuller, more electric, uh, more punchy version of uh, what it is. But uh, despite that... There is something about this song that is a bit sensitive, and especially on the end of Scud, but I think on both versions, there is something very touching about how it's built up, and it's very touching how the voice comes across and how the music supports the voice, but at the same time, they're really quite tearing into it. And that duality is especially there on the album version, where the band really do a rousing rock performance but at the same time it, there's a sensitivity to the melody that just hits me really nice And I think one example of this is uh, the bass. The bass on the album version of the song is just driving. So it's a very typical, classic Tony Butler bass line that uh, keeps up uh, a certain momentum and a tempo throughout all the verses. It's, it's, it's lovely to hear. And uh, the guitar solo as well, very solid, clear, melodic, very much like guitar solos on the previous couple of 90s big country releases, where I feel um, 
very often it's a very hummable part. It's not necessarily the the virtuoso guitar line. It's it's the line that sticks with you, and you find yourself just whistling it, and it's something that just becomes part of you. And sometimes it comes out in a nice little melody. And um, Diamond to me, one does that as well for me. I think um, the huge part, and I'm kind of skipping all the stuff you mentioned because we we feel (laughs) a lot of the same musically. But I I want to mention at any chorus, there's a lead vocal and a backing vocal that answers. So dive into me, and then you have dive into me being answered. And that works really well. At the end of the song, on the end of Scud, the lead vocal is gone and replaced by a guitar line again, but the backing vocals are kept. That's a very nice touch really just gorgeous and you can take a lot of things from that based on what the lyrics are about and how the song go the main voice is gone but the backing vocals that kind of shades it remain and that's very interesting in terms of what you just said that was the creepy element of uh, Mm. Is he drowning and is he dragging someone down? And suddenly the voice is gone, but the shading remains. <laughs> so, wow, yeah, that is go. interesting. So, um, yeah, wow. you can go all sorts of ways with that. I just primarily think musically it's a very beautiful part and it works that way. But I, I think the lyrics really are the, the punchline for me. All of the lyrics of this song. This is a song I always found really touching. Primarily, there's, that's, that's the lyrics. There's something about these lyrics that just seems so pure. And perhaps most of all, genuine. The words are touchingly genuine. And they fall directly into that, um, the style of the direct 90s writing approach. We're not hiding away anymore. We're, we're kind of saying it the way it is. Still very nicely, poetically. Still very, you know, there, there's a deep uh, skill in how they're crafted. But they managed to be direct. So it's not direct words. It's direct poetry. And when he says stuff like, follow your heart down when it's deep and it's dark, it's not everyday language. And if I had told someone to follow their hearts, they would look strangely at me. And uh, the deep and dark aspect, again, these words open themselves up to analysis, just like some of the earlier songs, even if they're much more direct than they used to be. So so this is, this is very interesting, and it captures me, really, quite a bit. The song really gets me from the get-go and it starts with, it was a long, hot day at the end of the summer. That's the serenity. And then the next line is, I had a chill in my heart like the start of the winter. There you go. Oh, here we go again. <laughs> it's, a, it's almost every day, like the setting, the end of the summer, warm, long, lazy, very nice days. But shock and surprise, the character in the big country song is troubled. And the, the phrase, uh, I had a chill in my heart like the start of the winter, that's... That's really a, a crux for me. Like everything should be perfect. Everything should be nice and you should be enjoying yourself. But there's a chill in your heart like the start of the winter. Like, wow, it <laughs> gets me right away. And uh, it's also quite alarming. What's wrong? What's going on? And one noticeable thing here, one notable thing about this passage is the use of winter one more time as an allegory for depression. And this is something that he always did. And uh, I tried to think of how often does he really use this? Because at this point in his career, the winter shows up in a lot of songs. And it often means the same thing. It's often an allegory for depression. 
And you had uh, even a song like Harvest Home, Who Heard the Winter Calling? Hmm. And in a big country, he can live and breathe and see the sun in wintertime. Like, even if things are bleak, he can see the hope. And in a big country, it's a very hopeful song, but it's yeah. the same thing. And obviously, in later times, can you feel the winter, feel it cold across your heart? It's definitely not the winter season he's uh, singing about there. And even a song like Wonderland, and I know I'm jumping back and forth. He says, I feel the winter too. You know, he feels the sadness and depression and the, the, the bad thoughts. And um, there's also, it's also been used as an allegory for disaster, like winter sky is the nuclear threat. And in much later uh, post-Stuart times, you have winter fire, which is anything from small to large disasters of personal or global significance. And then you have literal winter, of course, which is less interesting. But the... Um, the mention of winter is a key writing tool in Stuart's uh, vocabulary and uh, what its significance. So mm-hmm. the guy in this song is uh, is very clearly troubled, and uh, the troubles seem to be relationship related. So the the song itself is a plea. It's a very basic plea to the person he's addressing, and uh, the the chorus is really the crux of the plea that. Not just dive into me, follow your heart, dive into me, put a life in your hands. Those are the first part of the songs. But then you have the second part where he describes himself, you know, into the raging sea, down when it's deep in the dark, into the healing sea. It's almost like the first half is the plea, the second half is the warning of what you're getting yourself into. So it becomes almost like the same duality as Cerderosis Zone, where the first half was the propaganda, the second one was the scared voice. You see some of that here. But it's less clear because unlike the lyric sheets to where the rose is sewn, this looks like just one long string of sentence tied together and not divided as it was in that lyric sheet. It became bleeding obvious from the get-go. So uh, it's very interesting that he likens himself to a raging sea and uh, follow your heart down where it's deep and it's dark. You know, it seems like you know, he's being open about his issues, open about his trouble. Like, I am a raging sea. Uh, I'm, you know, it's deep and dark here, but also dive into me, into the healing sea, because perhaps when they're together, it becomes less raging, less dark, more healing. And then the change that made the chorus, put your life into my hands and take the chance, dive into me. That's the ultimate plea. He's put his case forth in the first three lines, and then it's do it now. Put your life into my hands. It's very dramatic. <laughs> That's. Are we talking about getting together or are we talking about life in that situation? And obviously, uh, these thoughts are valid knowing how it ended. And it's, it's tough to discuss it like that. It, it's really tough. But that gives the song an extra nerve to me and it becomes all the more personal for it. But I see it as even though these warnings are there and they're kind of red flags to the person he's addressing... This is what you get, but please do it. I'm, I'm pleading with you and uh, doesn't necessarily promise a happy ending like uh, the drowning sequence you, you, uh, you referred to yourself. And the first verse, he's standing alone. 
and then the first chorus you please and then the second verse driving off together so that can be taken as now they have a kind of start and they're going back to the where the river was born which kind of makes me think of river of hope right away they're going to the source and how the river springs from it and just trusting its path to a natural motion which again is an allegory for you know put your life into my hands and take a chance the ocean trusts the river to find its way just naturally and the same can happen in the relationship so there's there's a lot in this song it has a depth to it that uh, i think certainly lyrically i see no issue with the chorus i think that is really the natural conclusion for the verses and i see a lot of the duality there between pleading and warning that is very fascinating to me. And uh, you got to wonder how much he uh, he put himself in this song or if it's quote-unquote just a song because I'm always careful of assuming that every song is deeply autobiographical. But this one feels a bit like that. And especially knowing that he was potentially going into a new relationship at the time. It fits the time and it fits his private life. So it's uh, natural to think that way. So I think this song ends up being a very personal song for Stuart on this album, uh, as far as I can tell it. So um, there you go. I can't really say much more. I think it's a very emotional song. And um, either version, I go back and forth on liking the uh, acoustic approach or the uh, band approach. I think both of them have their strengths and uh, and weaknesses. But I, I love both of them. I really love this song. And I think uh, it just tugs on the heartstrings really strong. Uh, I also like the versions of the song that they played on the Final Fling tour. Uh, this was a much-played song during that tour, and one I believe they would have kept playing from this album if the band had continued instead of stopping. But as it is, they stopped, and they don't really play anything from the 90s really anymore at all, apart from Kansas and Ships, which personally I think is a big shame, but I, I do get it. It's uh, they, they do focus on the quote-unquote glory years. And I'm sure they must have some lingering disappointment about this time and how it all went with the album and singles. Yeah, so. yeah good. So that's that's pretty much it. So where do you rank it? Uh, this is a very high song for me on this album. It's uh, my number two. Oh, wow. I'm going to take a page from your last one, and it is number eight for me. It could have been worse based on what you were saying. That's, uh, it's almost well, like, yeah. that's not too bad. I can take that. Well, you know, it's it's the it's the rest of this everything but the chorus I think is so strong mm-hmm. that it's impossible to rank that song too low. But yeah. it it just the chorus just uh just doesn't do it for me. But let yeah. me see if I thought anything differently back in 2000. And and let me say too that it's not like it doesn't do anything for me. I mean, I love the sentiment. I just wish it could have been expressed a little bit differently, but yeah. anyway. So back then I said I know I'm in the minority here, but this song just never really grabbed me. I don't know why either, because it sounds great on this album. I think I just never liked the chorus very much from a lyrical perspective. Anyway, if you like the song on In the Scud, you'll love this version. Much heavier guitars, more effective arrangement, better production all around. A definite quality song just doesn't grab me like some others here do. So that that was my definition, I guess, of a deep dive back then. Three or four sentences. Well, it was just an album review. (laughs) It was pretty good. And uh, this kind of is reaffirming that initial uh, takes and how a song hits you right away is often how it sticks with you. Yeah, that's so funny. Yeah. yeah that's all I've, I've always felt that way about that tune, but anyway. All right. 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 Good evening, guys. John Wilbur here. 
I, uh, I must say, I really do like driving to Damascus quite a bit. Um, I listen to it probably more than most of the other albums. I don't like it uh, more than the other albums per se. I, I like it. It falls in the middle of the pack. Um, but I, I do, I do really enjoy the album. Um, I didn't get to it until long after it was published or came out. I got it through eBay. Uh, the late '90s, early t- 2000s were a time of great uh, upheaval in my life. Uh, a lot of things were happening, and so I was away from music for a while. And the big thing that happened in the once the the new uh, century broke or the millennium broke was the death of George Harrison, and that occupied a lot of my thoughts for quite some time. And it was was quite a while later that I heard that Stewart had passed also, and that really kind of uh, put the kibosh on a lot of thinking. But what it did then is it told me that that was it for for fresh big country material, new big country material. So I immediately started me- marshalling what uh, resources I had and started acquiring as much as I could. And the first thing I got was Come Up Screaming. And that's where I first heard most of the uh, the driving to Damascus stuff. That uh, that was the first stuff I heard from the album, and I must say I liked it because it was it was stuff that I had not heard before. And uh, we had all the rarities and all that other stuff coming out there. And somewhere in there, I got the album of driving to Damascus, and it took some getting used to. In some cases, the the synthesizers on like see you, but um, I, I still I. I there's not a dud song on it. I know that's, that's heresy in some people's minds. Even Bella doesn't bother me. But um, it was going to be what I thought at the time, and I had no reason to think otherwise, was the last new material we were going to hear from Big Country Forever. And then, uh, then the rarity started raining on us, and there was all kinds of so-called new material. But Driving to Damascus has held up well for me, and I, I, I listened to it at... It reflects some of uh, what was going on in my life at that time. Um, it's just a shame what, what finally did happen with this whole thing. And the story of the album now, listening to the first part of uh, episode 70, it's just gets your blood boiling about what, what happened. But anyway, I'm going to go on record as saying I think it's a great album and I really like it. Um, and that's all I have to say for now. Talk to you later. Bye. Hi, Tom and Swine and everyone listening in Big Country Country. Hi, how are you? Uh, Harry Medium here in the middle of England in 2017 talking about the Driving to Damascus album uh, because that's what you've asked us to do, so that's what I'm going to do. Some context in terms of my fandom. I was aware of the band uh, through the Seer and Peace in Our Time, probably taped some singles off the radio. I was about uh, 12 when the Seer came out. But it wasn't until 1990 and through a big country that they became the first band, really, that I truly loved and had to own everything. We just got a video, so I was able to tape stuff off the telly. They were doing promo for Through a Big Country. Fell in love. Um, And I you know, in the olden days, before the internet, it was pretty difficult to get a band's back catalogue. You had to know what it was for a start. Uh, lots of magazines, lots of record fairs. Uh, but back to Driving to Damascus, I think my introduction was the Fragile Thing, the Perfect World videos. Fragile Thing, of course, in the video. Um, the chorus 
the first chorus is sung by Eddie Reader, and I think that put me off. I thought they were going in a direction that I wasn't liking, and it put me off a bit. And the Perfect World video, although it was a good song, it had um, I saw the Kosovo video for some reason. It was a bit depressing. Uh, so that put me off as well. But um, then things happened. Everyone knows what happened in 2001, and um, I just couldn't listen to it, like many people I've, I've found. And I think... That is something that I have to thank the podcast and other listeners for, is realising that that's pretty much how we all felt, and it was okay. And so, from the start of this year, when I discovered the podcast, I have reimbursed myself in the big country. Uh, so back to driving to Damascus, it's, I think it's um, got sort of three and a half really great songs on it, there's a lot of average stuff, and there's a couple of songs that shoot for something, but... And near misses. Um, for example, Drive to Damascus has a great chorus, but I find the rest of it a little bit cliched and a bit, you know, a bit. Same with Dive Into Me. I can see that they were trying to do something different. I think it's got a great verse, but the chorus and stuff is a bit cliche. I think that's the only word I can think of cliche. Um, Drive to Damascus with Harry Medium Part 2. Oh, God, I've gone over three minutes. I really didn't mean to do that. I was trying to get it all in. Uh, what can I say? I have lots to say on the subject of big country. Um, so, yeah, good songs. Perfect world. I think up there, I mean, yeah, there's some cliched lyric in there maybe. And um, But it's a rocker, isn't it? And it's it's a pretty good pop song. Uh, I even like the video. I think they, were, they did a decent video for it so um i quite like that song um fragile thing again that has grown on me since my initial dislike i think it is brilliant uh i think that the folds uh let's not talk about the folds suffice to say i think fragile thing really was the band almost getting to the point where they could have maybe not reached the heady heights of previous times but certainly had some sort of decent radio 2 rotation it was on the cusp of breaking them again instead it just broke them again i really do think that it was a major factor um other songs that i like on the album specifically trouble the waters i really like trouble the waters I think it's a good song. It's a little bit different. It's got that mix of sort of folk and country styles that Stuart's maybe going for, but it's still really good. <laughs> Not that that wouldn't be good. Um, but the, he's on the cusp of his voice being that whole... Uh, why? 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 I, I've got lots of theories about Stuart and his voice, and I could wax lyrical for a lot more than three minutes on them. Uh, maybe another time. Uh, but... The voice thing takes me into Shattered Cross, which is like the, the half of a good song. I think that would be a really good song. I really like the song. But why make words not sound like words anymore? I mean, what? The Raid? So a woman in Raid? I don't know. So, yeah, two classics, I think. Perfect World and Fragile Thing. Some near misses. Some garbage. I think the president slipped and fell could be lost, couldn't it? Um... I think it might have led to more acceptance, maybe, of the band as a slightly different proposition to how they had been in the past. It didn't happen. It might have led to some more merging of the styles, which I think would have been good. Um, it is very difficult to listen to without a massive amount of emotional baggage. Even now, um, it's 
it's hard. It's, it's a hard album to listen to in full. I can dip in and out of different songs, but it's definitely got that emotional connection to bad things that have happened in the past. I think it's got to be in my bottom two um, of the nine, how we say nine or eight albums. Definitely in my bottom two. Thanks, guys. Speak to you again soon, I hope. Don't forget, I know I want to say things about Stuart's voice. Half an hour at least. Thanks, bye. This is actually a good place to stop, so next time we'll start. Oh, gosh, I see you. Start with the rant. Okay, well, that'll, that'll warm us up. Awesome. Good discussion. My, my wife just came in, and uh, in fact, her, her very words were, you're still gabbing? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, she's right. It's been, it's been since, what, 1230? <laughs> oh. It's almost been four hours. All right. Tell Jonah, yes, we're still gabbing. Doesn't mean you never dreamt 
Dive into me. 